The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, and welcome to uh, the first business day of uh, the year 2016. Uh, This is Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm your show host, Dave Goldberg, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us, and and you can follow live uh, tweeting of the show at hashtag bigbeaconradio. And today, uh, we're going to kick off the new year with a special guest. Uh, we're going to explore new kinds of value and new kinds of uh, ways of thinking about uh, professional and, and uh, higher education. Welcome to the show, Kyle Davey. Good morning, or good morning here in California, where I am. Yeah, and uh, so you're, you're in the Bay Area, and we're here in snowy western um, uh, Michigan, but uh, Kyle, uh, you and I met uh, at the Engineers Without Borders meeting up in uh, Toronto a few months ago, and I really, w- I really dug your stuff and and how you think about um, how you think about professions and and some of the implications for the organization of work and and uh, and there's some pretty clear uh, implications uh, for for higher education. I'm I'm really excited to get started talking with you. Good, looking forward to it. Yeah, and and so, uh, but before we uh, jump into all that, I, you know, Kyle, you've had a fascinating career. You've been a, trained as an architect, worked as an architect. You were a COO of a successful architecture firm, and and for a long time, you've been a consultant uh, to uh, leaders, professional professionals, and and leaders of professional organizations and their firm. But let's uh, let's uh, go back in the time machine and and. Uh, what were some of the key early experiences that that led you on your your current career path? Yeah, it was, uh, you know that question sort of brings up the one of the notions that we deal with. I think in a lot of the work I do now with leaders is we we have them reflect on what their what we characterize as their leader's journey, mm-hmm. and um, it's almost like the hero's journey uh, perspective. And you know, thinking about myself. You know, I probably started, you know, with my first uh, job that I had where I had the fortunate, uh, where I was fortunate enough to be in a situation where I had a mentor and a coach that was a deep believer in things that I think set the stage for the rest of my life in terms of my intellectual pursuits. But it was a person that was very much a systems thinker uh, who um, believed in 
uh, coming up and you know uh, having an open learning environment in terms of the architectural studio that that we had that we spent you know all you know, large amounts of time in ongoing conversation and reflection about the problems that we were facing and and I think that you know really set in place uh, a lot of the perspective that I have about inquiry and reflection and responsibility for larger systems um, and you know having that mentor and coach I think to begin with but but having that learning environment was was key to setting the stage yeah uh, what, for the what was it, growth. yeah what was it uh, about the, your interaction with this mentor that was uh, so opening or, or so important if you can reflect on that. Yeah, I think it was in the sense, you know, most young architects, I think, when they join firms are quickly uh, plugged into doing the work, if you will. But in those days, uh, you know, in the mid-'70s, the work was drafting and doing details and, uh, you know, really getting serious about, you know, putting in the hours for, you know, client projects, et cetera. But this particular leader, it was, you know, for him, yes, you had to do that, but it, as well you had to take the time to, uh, you know, explore the ideas, the issues, uh, the larger context within which projects existed. And, you know, he would stop by, you know, virtually every afternoon for hour-plus uh, wow. long yeah. conversations just to explore those ideas and, and, and to, you know, and the signal to me, of course, was, you know, that that was uh, not only okay, but it was expected to have that, that type of inquiry as part of being a professional. That's kind of a beautiful experience to have back in the 70s. And actually, you're thinking, you're bringing up, you know, as a young engineer in the 70s, it's, I tell people this, and it's it's like old home week. It's like my colleague Bev Harvest calls it a goldest harvest moment where oldsters talk about old experiences, but they sat you down on a drafting board and you had to go get physical drawings out of the drawing room and you had to make changes to those physical drawings. It wasn't, it wasn't like the world that we live in today. Oh yeah. I mean, so, so yeah, there was all of that work, but it was this, it was this piece about taking time for, yeah. you know, the inquiry and the reflection and the conversation. I mean, one of the great, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> your description of technology, one of the great, uh, tools that we had to assist us was, you know, uh, the conference room where we'd have lots of these conversations had was probably 25 feet long, and one side of it was covered with a blackboard, and there was a chalk tray, and it wasn't a whiteboard and markers, it was a blackboard and chalk, and just the physical nature of having a conversation and diagramming and, and, and using that media was, was such a great reinforcement. Nice. And and it sounds like maybe this this may have been what the, the next question I want to ask is is you know in in a whole new engineer Mark Somerville and I talk about unleashing experiences and we think that a central idea in in realigning education with our times is this uh, uh, unleashing young people to have courage to to do things uh, in in their lives and it, it looking at your career from a distance it appears that you've You've had the courage to go your own way on any number of occasions, and so I'm wondering: was it was it these early experiences with this mentor, or were there other things in your in your career path that sort of unleashed you to go off and do your own thing as you now do? You know, certainly the, these early experiences with with that mentor. I think one of the one of the projects that we did early on in with that firm was a particularly groundbreaking project that you know. Is, 
set in mind for me a whole series of, of questions to be pursued that, you know, eventually I concluded couldn't be pursued within the context of the firm. Uh, and so that drove me to the next step, which was to go back to, back to school myself at that time, and not in architecture, but I ended up uh, going off to get an MBA, and, but not for the pursuit of being a management consultant per se or an investment banker or something, but rather there are a series of questions about organizations and how they work and behave on uh, developmental paths for organizations, and the body of knowledge existed over there, so it was to pursue that body of knowledge. Then later on, I think after, after I'd you know, come out of that educational experience was managing a firm, uh, we had set up a school here in San Francisco sort of on the weekends uh, where a bunch of us uh, had responded to a guy who proposed, gee, there should be a school that teaches leadership and management skills to design professionals, engineers and architects and all the related people. And we, you know, it was one of those, those situations where you put up your hand, you go, well, that's a good idea. I could teach something. And after a couple of years of, of doing that, realized that I deeply loved to teach mm. and that uh, I wasn't interested in going back to an academic environment to do that, but to be able to do it within the context of practicing professionals and the people in the firms that I worked with was, was really interesting and appealing. And so it was at that point that I decided to you know, stop managing a firm and go off to do that consulting work. So I think you know, the fairly classic sense of following your passion, following where, you know, what really speaks to you, yeah. uh, finding a different way to pursue your personal mission, which hadn't changed from when I was an architect in terms of caring for the quality of the built and natural environment, but deciding I could do it, you know, in a different way. Nice. And, and so, uh, you know, and I'm, yeah, well, I'm hearing I'm hearing a lot of Joseph Campbell, and you know, I just heard uh, you didn't use the words, but I'm you know, following oh, the, your the bliss and journey with yeah. Campbell is absolutely there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and um, now great stuff, and and so you know, and a lot of a lot of the the speaking you do and work that you do is 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 with professionals, and but that's actually that's become a, a term that. That has some difficulty in our in our time. Some of the changes, some of the technological and economic changes, have have, um, have made uh, professional work sometimes ambiguous. And and um, so, what is it? Um, you know, and it used to be that it was it was clearer in many of the professions. It was defined by institutions. It was defined by certification boards. It was defined. Uh, it was defined by where you got your you know the kind of places you got your degrees, but. But what is what's a what's a professional today? Well, for me, I think the the notion of a professional starts with um, rather than the, the those physical attributes or the the artifacts of the profession. I think it starts with really one the grand bargain that society uh, makes with a group of individuals, where there are a group of individuals that 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 decide that you know they will be stewards of a particular. Um, problem set or knowledge area on behalf of society. And for that stewardship, uh, society grants them special position and protection, compensation, etc. And that, you know, that grand bargain, uh, you know, there, there's that side about, you know, uh, controlling education or, you know, the educational process and, you know, controlling, you know, registration and controlling the numbers of people and things like that. But that's probably, for my, for my money, less important than this idea of, you know, stewardship of the domain 
and and how do you you know on behalf of society? So, for instance, you know all of my work is with what I characterize as built and natural environment professionals. Yeah. So it's the professionals that shape the built and natural world. So the whether that's the civil engineer or all the different engineers, structural, uh, mechanical, uh, the geotechnical folks, the architects, the landscape architects. But it's this bargain that they you know, agree to that say, we will be stewards of that domain. We will uh, do what it takes to you know, uh, solve the problems there, to push the boundaries in terms of how to create um, you know, a better situation for society, uh, and share that knowledge, but in turn, then then we'll get these these, these compensating benefits. So I think it's that grand bargain that, that really sets sets it in place for me. Yeah, and 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 that's you know that that's actually raises some interesting points. And in, uh, uh, um, I'm thinking about uh, the book Revolt of the Engineers and right. and and some of the distinctions between you know between. The civil engineers who had who had and probably still have stronger professional ties than say um, say the mining engineers who were always socially captive to the uh, to the mine owners uh, and and uh, and then electrical engineers being somewhat in 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 the middle of that bargain and uh, kind of starting out in the late eighteen hundreds being kind of the the rock stars in much the same way that software engineers are rock stars of our time but then quickly becoming socially captive to the the two three four big electron electrical engineering electronics firms of the time right yeah so yeah. I, so and actually in your in your work and in kind of making these distinctions you you, you allude to um, a two-dimensional map of the strength of a profession and and the health of a profession what what does what does that mean, or what what are those well, terms? Well, think, yeah, you know, I think this notion of uh, you know, with regard to professions, lots of the authors that you know do their work, you know, or, or, or researchers and academics that focus on professions, yeah. often try and uh, delineate them based on these, you know, what I would characterize as the strength factors. How strong is a particular uh, profession? And the idea of strength is. In, in many ways, in my mind, it's how clearly defined and broadly accepted is the domain in which this bargain has been accepted. Um, and, you know, the, the strength factors that, that typically have been talked about, you know, are things like professional authority, you know, autonomy and control of the workplace as a professional, uh, a sense of monopoly power uh, with regard to jurisdictions. So, the, you know, there are... Uh, boards of architects or engineers, etc., that will determine what's in and what's out, what's ethical practice, what isn't, um, and very much the control of the, uh, if you want to call it, entrance and exit of professionals, uh, all the way through education and licensing, up through uh, you know eventual emeritus status. So there's a there's a sense of you know how strong and, and, and you know you can sort of compare where the professions were, particularly, say, back in the 50s and 60s, that you had really strong professions of, of medicine and law. Um, engineering and architecture, I think, were of moderate strength. Uh, yep. And then you had, you know, professions that were less strong, like journalism. And then, you know, over 30 or 40 years, what you see is, you know, in many ways, I think, given some of the 
forces in society that I think you were alluding to at the start of you know this section when you're commenting. You know, all the profession's strength has waned uh, because of a variety of things. But more important for me is, than strength is is how healthy is it? Uh, is that profession? Uh, and, and if you think about health being the capability of actually delivering on uh, what you could characterize the va- as the value proposition in yeah. that bargain. Yeah. Um, and there I think you, you know, have, have, have situations that, you know, or symptoms of health you might describe that, that have to do with, you know, how aligned are the practitioners in the, in the uh, particular profession, uh, what's the nature of competition amongst the professions, I mean, the professional practitioners, is it constructive or destructive? What's the, uh, you know, are practitioners able to really engage in activities that um, are, are, are really about the, being a professional in the highest sense uh, uh, and, 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 and working in that way? Are they able to pursue mastery? Are they able to push the boundaries of knowledge? Are they able to be creative and innovative? Are all symptoms, I think, of health? And, and if you look at you know, where professions are, you know, the, the, many of those factors on, from a health standpoint are in trouble in many professions. Yeah. Um, and, and so then how do we worry less about the strength and having, you know, even fortify the boundaries so that we can control exit and entrance with, with professional exams and, and those types of things? Rather, how do we pay attention to the health factors and, 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 and you know, as leaders inside the professions or professional firms uh, do things that contribute to the health of those professions and worry less about strength. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, and I was, I was, I was listening to you talk. I was thinking about, uh, I was thinking about Porter's five forces and uh, strategy that, that part of the health equation has to do with the, the extent to which you've kind of, you've got kind of a strategic position based on what's going on out there and I was hearing the health the the uh, I'm sorry the health factors in that way and I was hearing the strength factors more as um, um, some of the the granting of of the privilege the you know so what you know what uh, what power is granted as part of the bargain more external externally granted by some other institution to the profession and then hearing the the health more and kind of uh, to what extent is is there a coherent strategic position for the profession? I know that you didn't say it that way, but I heard it. I was hearing it that yeah, way. Yeah, I think was that it? would be a, you know, an aspect of it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, this is this is great stuff, and and um, uh, and and we're and we're going to take a break here in a minute. So. Um, Actually, let's you know, let's let's go take that break. And I think what you know, one of the things we want to talk, one of the things that you say from the get go is that uh, professionals need to get away from selling time. And I think that that's where we want to pick up after after the after uh, after the break. So this is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Kyle Davy, and we're talking about a new kind of value in the professions. And in the next segment, we want to talk about getting away from selling time and creating value in new ways. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? 
Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And in 2016, get a copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. Um, and uh, it's not just for engineers anymore. And and before, and we're here, uh, I'm Dave Goldberg. This is Big Beacon Radio, and I'm here with uh, Kyle Davey. And b- before the break, we were, we were just starting to talk about the the ways uh, uh, the, the professions um, have um, gotten less strong. And in ways, many of them have gotten a little, um, a little bit uh, uh, less, less healthy. So... Uh, and, and one of the things that you argue from the, the beginning, Kyle, is that you know we need to get away from this idea of professional selling time. What, what more can you say about that? Well, I think here here I need to you know recognize that, that the work I do is primarily with professionals that are working uh, in firms, uh, as opposed to say professionals that are working inside industry or inside government who obviously aren't selling time, they're doing the work of those organizations. Um, but, you know, with, you know, the segment of professionals that are, uh, have independent practices, uh, and, and particularly, as I mentioned earlier, my work has been really focused on built environment professionals. Um, you know, we began, a, my, a colleague of mine, Susan Harris, and I began a, an inquiry really almost uh, 15, 16 years ago now, looking at uh, the health of those particular types of organizations, the, the professional engineer, architect, uh, landscape architect, et cetera, those, those professionals. And, you know, in that inquiry, we were particularly focused on, on, you know, what's the value proposition of the existing model of practice? And, you know, the, the observation there is that, you know, almost all of those professional uh, design and, and built environment profession, or firms are focused on, you know, a value proposition that's about selling hours. They sell technical services by the hours to their clients. Now, that actually is a value proposition uh, in an economic business model that's only been in place probably about 30 or 40 years. Uh, Mid-70s was a turning point where prior to that it was more 
a straight fee-based value proposition, but they were all taught for a variety of reasons uh, how to sell hours. Now, the difficulty has been that, you know, over the course of the 30 years since they adopted that business model, uh, aligned with other changes in society and technology, that those hours are increasingly viewed by clients as, you know, all the same, that one engineer's hours are the same as another engineer's hours or one architect's hours are the same as uh, another architect. So, I mean, they've become commoditized. Yep. And so the, you know, a lot of my work in the last 15 years has been to try and, and, and the book that Susan and I uh, wrote, Value Redesign, was to try and uh, frame that dilemma uh, that firms were facing, that the value proposition that had worked for them uh, was no longer, uh, or no longer fit uh, the contemporary environment, and that they really needed to go about the hard work of transforming that into uh, into a new practice model that creates value in different ways and also sets up opportunities to be rewarded uh, in different ways for the value that they do create. Yeah, so, uh, and, and actually, you know, I was thinking about this in the last hour, you know, the sense of the, the, weakening, the weakening health and strength um, in part being related to the technological changes. We alluded to that at the very beginning, but there's a sense in which, you know, that, that we're, what we're talking about here for an architect or an engineer or really for any professional is, is a certain kind of expertise. And, and, and you just talked about it being commoditized, but part of what information technology has done is, is kind of, you know, made, made what used to be the stuff of a professional's, you know, the 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 content of a professional's knowledge, at least the ta- the the explicit knowledge, has become commoditized, and anyone has access to this to the same papers and books and and references that an architect or an engineer. So so an economist Absolutely. might say that 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 returns to expertise have diminished in a. a Broadly, not just you know, not just for the professions that that yeah. this wide ex- access to information has made the the stuff that used to be key kind of old hat. Well, that's right. I mean, there's a a new book out by authors Richard and David or Daniel Susskind mm-hmm. titled "The Future of the Professions," and in that book, they basically argue that you know professions along the lines of what you've described. Uh, you know, are at threat for becoming, you know, or or for dying off in in the face of technology that is increasingly capable of providing the knowledge and expertise that professionals often provide. Uh, so that you don't need the professional status to do it. You don't need somebody keeping the domain. Now, I actually have have significant, you know, uh, issues with with regard to what they're proposing. But this notion that technology is one of those major factors complicating uh, the situation and driving, you know, or helping create, you know, less healthy professionals as well as professional service firms, I think is exactly right. And, but, but then there's the other side of it, is that that technology, if adopted in different ways and if, and if used by the professionals, can be part of the reinvention and the transformation. So, it's, you know, do you play victim to it? Or do you begin to see it, uh, see the opportunity, and act more entrepreneurial with regard to what the possibilities are? Yeah, I, I agree, and I think the the simple the, the you know the you know the simple di- returns to expertise argument or you know diminution 
uh, of of these things um, has a only works if you have a very stilted view of what what an architect or an engineer actually knows. Unfortunately, well, also, a lot. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, and not only what they know, but I think the piece that that they they, they miss is this notion of stewardship. Is that what mm. are the what are their commitments? What are their uh, you know, beliefs and values around the domain yep. that they're stewards of, and I think that is not something that is replicated in you know by by the technology, if you will. Nice and 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 yeah, and is something that's kind of is deeply emotional and cultural. Uh, not just it, we're not just we're not just talking about knowing now. We've transcended cognition and gone somewhere else when we start talking about stewardship and things like that. And I, and right. I think you're right. I think we, I think that that's, that's part of the, um, way out. So, um, so, uh, and I, we've just alluded to this a little bit and in your, in your book, you say that these changes are needed because of some disruptive trends. And we've talked about technology, what, but what are the key forcing functions of, of the the changes that we're feeling, well, I think there's a you know there's, there's various categories of them. Certainly, technology is one, and and the rising technical complexity of um, not 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 how they do the work, although that's a factor. But I think ra- rather the technical technological complexity of the problems that they try and work on on behalf of society, uh, whether it's buildings or. Uh, infrastructure in in the case of the built environment folks or or other aspects of it there's, so there's technological complexity that that that's growing there's increasing social complexity yeah. uh, such that um, you know whether whether you want to find that in terms of diversity or uh, the number of uh, active motivated stakeholders that are engaged in uh, you know in projects that you've got you know lots more voices at the table that need to be managed so that you know the old notion of what an engineer or an architect the solutions that they could develop you know independently you know free of significant social interaction suddenly fall uh, fall away in the face of that social complexity there's yeah. uh, you alluded to uh, Porter's five factors there's many New uh, non-traditional competitors, and uh, on the technological side, suddenly for the built environment professionals, at least there are uh, the manufacturers through prefabrication and mass customization. There's uh, non-traditional competitors in the form of uh, you know global competitors. Uh, also, you know, so there's that competitive side. There's you know, and then fundamentally, there's this notion of you know the maturity of of the model of, of practice of this notion of selling hours, and 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 all of that I think conspires to create that that uh, you know situation where the health you, you know if if you stay there if you try and maintain your current model of practice in the face of those uh, challenges, uh, the likelihood of the health of your practice and or the health of the profession I think is is severely threatened. Yeah, and I and I was as you were you were talking about the technical and social complexity. I wanted to, you know, we met in Toronto at a meeting that was uh, facilitated by Adam Kahane, and I had Adam on the show the other day. And you know, of course, he's got the triple, and the triple of the the the, the triple that fits is uh, generative complexity. The idea, oh that, yeah, yeah, that that you know that the what it is that you might actually be making. Is uncertain, or or what it is you know, the business of being an architect, an engineer, or any other professional is is kind of unsettled, and because of all 
because of the technology and other other uh, no not just technology because of the new ways of doing business the new ways of starting businesses and 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 uh, the glue that the internet offers us there's just so many different things that can be done that we couldn't even imagine before that the the stuff of being an engineer and architect is is kind of is not settled and 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 we're in the middle of inventing new new stuff to work on that that, right. that goes like you say go beyond goes beyond ours right and 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 there again is is you know on the one side is the threat yeah but on the other on the other side is if you you know if you embrace that and don't uh you know kneel down into a protective crouch as a professional and try and or as a profession try and you know strengthen the professional boundaries in terms of licensing or other mechanisms uh, but rather you embrace that uh, set of challenges, suddenly new opportunities begin to, you know, uh, be put in place. Uh, and, and I think a lot of what Susan and I were trying to get in that book and a lot of the teaching that I've done over the last, you know, 20 years is, is, is focused on helping people make that shift from threat and, and a defensive posture to uh, an inquiry and an openness to develop, uh, you know, new possibilities. Yeah. So what's a so you know what's a, an engineer, architect, professional? Uh, you know that these things can be viewed as threats. So so you know what's the uh, aikido or jujitsu move to kind of turn what initially you feel is a threat into uh, into to something that's an opportunity? What's a what's a professional or professional firm to do today to 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 um, to rise above this? I think there, there, there were at least three major areas. I mean, if you take a value proposition, typically value propositions can be thought of as, you know, how do you create value and then how do you get rewarded for the value you create, two sides of it. If you look at the, 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 the creating value side, if you move away from simply saying that we're going to sell ours, uh, the possibilities for value creation are just huge these days. One, through technical innovation and, 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 and creativity, and and you can move all the way from uh, you know materials and methods to you know how do you begin to uh, really engage in the big data uh, world and bring those uh, ideas and, and, and capabilities into the professional uh, design and engineering firm. Uh, you know, just lots of stuff with regard to the technology because it is becoming more complex. But that complexity yields possibilities. So, so we need new skills to understand that complexity and and to find the leverage points or the places where we can be creative. Um, but you know, the the possibilities I think are, are are so much richer than say they were back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, a second, you know, major you know thrust with regard to you know value creation is in the realm of experience. And that what we recognize is it's just not the, the, the final solution in terms of solving a technical problem, but because, you know, the environments that create, in particular I'm talking about built environment professionals right now, people are part of it. And the experiences that they have in those environments and the experience that the people have in the uh, movement of a project from inception to completion all create possibilities for helping people learn Things to helping them shift their stance with regard to how they live their lives, uh, how they relate to their cities or their neighborhoods, and, and so there's possibilities in experience design. There's possibility, and, and this I think is the, the most significant piece. There's possibilities that exist in terms of shifting from seeing your professional work as about 
say, the technology or creating the solution as an architect or the building to recognizing that professionals in the, in the care for their domain can act as leaders and can help lead their clients, their communities, uh, the broader society in really significant ways and that you create value through leadership just like you create value through uh, technical work. And, and once you recognize the possibility of creating value through leadership, uh, then just huge possibilities open up in terms of what you know, the professions can do, uh, new leverage points in society. Well, and, and, um, and, 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 I, that, and I, I thought that was a, real, a point that was really well made in the book and, and, I, and um, moving beyond building stuff or building things to, to, to experience and other, other possibilities. And of course, though, um, you talked about the skills then needed to be able to do that and in many ways those are – those are skills that tra- – you know, so if you're talking about big data, that's not typically what architects have been trained or engineers have been trained to do. Or if you're talking about Leadership. telling stories or creating new experiences in the built environment and being kind of more anthropologically aware uh, that – well, and architects have, have done that. Engineers typically have, have not. But then you look at companies like IDEO and, oh, and the Stanford D School and yep. the whole design thinking movement takes us yep. in that direction. So, so, so I think you're exactly right. So, so to do this, it's just not something that you can decide to do and then make the shift. Rather, you know, you've got, you know, to the, the professionals and or the professional firms have to go through a significant learning and change process to uh, equip themselves, uh, to outfit themselves, to enable themselves in order to create these new forms of value. And that transition uh, is, uh, you know, will be significant for all of them. But it, but it's kind of a choice. You can either choose to lean into it and to begin to learn what you need to learn in order to create those forms of value, or you can stay, stay stuck in that uh, position of uh, uh, peril, uh, where your model of practice, you know, if left unattended, can result in, you know, many ways the death of your firm and or the death of your profession. And, you know, from, from our perspective, it's lean in and begin to do that work. Um, Susan, in our, in our book, talked, you know, particularly about, you know, some shifts of mind that enable, uh, you know, that, that are, that are going to be important for the professional firms, but also for the prof- leaders and the profession, professionals in those firms to, to, to accomplish this. And, and, and I think some of them are really, you know, are, are really going to be significant for people that, you know, on the engineering side, there's so much of a tendency for engineers to see parts and pieces, to, to live in a, what I characterize as a second law of thermodynamics world, uh, where you've got a closed system and you can engineer and, and the math will all add up. Yeah. Um, and, and there has to be a shift, I think, to a much broader sense of systems thinking, particularly around whole system awareness and the idea of living systems uh, and that you've got open boundaries and collaboration possibilities. And, and that, you know, that type of mind shift, a mind shift away from uh, being tactical to being strategic in the way that you talked about a little, little bit ago, uh, a shift in mind from being dependent on clients, on, on others, to really a sense of professional empowerment, but accountability about what you're 
you know, the the the, yeah. the the way that you're you're helping the domain that you're stewards of evolve. Uh, so yeah. there's shifts of mind, as well as then there's new skills you got to acquire. Whether again on the technological side, the big data side, gee, we need to. You know, we're going to need a bunch of people that know how to do that type of data analysis and 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 develop that stuff. Interesting. There's a saw saw a program by a speaker from or that had a speaker from uh, a large architectural firm, NBBJ. Uh, they're headquartered, I think, out of Seattle, and they were noting that you know, in a in a firm of about 650 people, they now have a core group of almost 20 people that are the equivalent of data analysis and computer analytic type uh, folks. Sure. that are now supporting other project teams. So they're acquiring the skills. Well, just like you acquire those technological skills, you've got to develop the leadership and experience design capacities, you know, including, and, you know, you, yeah. as you note, you know, the Stanford D School and the idea of design thinking. That would be absolutely one of those things on yeah. the list. Uh, and I think we want to come – we want to – hang on this uh, idea of mindset and, and some of the shifts that are needed and, and, and also put them in the context – of the education of professionals and higher education more generally. So this is Big Beacon Radio with special guest uh, Kyle Davey. In the next segment, we're going to come back to this idea of some of the misalignments and, and some of the mind shifts needed to make these changes. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. 5790 or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And get the speaking, coaching, and deep faculty development you need to help transform higher education at your school at 3joy.com. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with uh, special guest uh, Kyle Davey. I'm Dave Goldberg. And in the last segment, we were we were talking about, Kyle, we were talking about some of the um, some of the misalignments, I, and I actually, in the book, I liked how you sort of put it in the, the misalignments in the mind of the young professional as educated, because that's very relevant to our work here on Big Beacon mm-hmm. Radio, and and some of the realities of, in, in the professions, and then some of the mindset, mindset shifts, say that six times, um, <laughs> that are needed to, that are needed to, um, 
to get this to to start to work? Yeah, and and actually, I mean, the those mindsets uh, are are really put in place in many ways, you know, through that educational experience, and then yes. they're expressed in the current practice. So, so change one, you got to change both. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, I mean, one of those mindsets that young professionals have, and you know, you can see it in, manifest in different ways, whether it's an architect or an engineer. But the, the one, you know, in schools, I think the, the the young professionals are taught that they're you know, they, they're autonomous and, and they operate with expert authority that they'll be able to, you know, and, and that gets manifest in practice that, you know, the professionals try and be that autonomous expert. And what we realize now is that practice is, you know, collaborative. It's integrated with lots of other people. It has that complexity of the social network of people that are involved in projects and this idea of being an autonomous, you know, expert and having that authority versus collaborative work where you've got to convince people of the rightness of your solutions, just not the technical rightness. You know, and say in in school, people are taught, you know, young architects are taught that they've got the power to shape the building and shape the environment rather independently, when in fact then they get out into uh, society in the, or their practice and they realize that, you know, there are all sorts of other people that are also shaping the building and determining the solution, whether those are the clients or the contractors or uh, community community groups or whatever, and, and that sense of, you know, how much power do I really have? Uh, the idea that, you know, young professionals, you know, or in school are taught that there's lots of interesting problems. And I think the the school really engages people to deal with significant interesting problems. And then so many people, when they get out into practice, confront, you know, in their early professional careers, confront situations where, in fact, they're not, they're not allowed to deal with interesting problems at all, that the interesting problems aren't present, both in terms of the type of project work that the firm has, but also in terms of their roles on those projects. Uh, for, for, for young architects, that, that it really is expressed that you get, you know, in, in school it's all about the creative design experience in the studio and that you're allowed to, you know, express your creativity or expected to and develop that. In practice, for young architects, almost no one gets to design. Almost everyone is involved in the other aspects of the architectural work. Uh, same thing in engineering. You know, there's that creative problem-solving nugget, but then in practice, uh, people are doing CAD drawings or 3D models or whatever, and not the creative work. So there's all these misalignments, and then then you can take it from from those mindsets uh, that say you know are expressed then in the firm to this new world of value creation, uh, you know, that, that, you know, this old idea of professional autonomy or, you know, we, you know, we get the ability to just define our own problems and solutions in, in the world of practice uh, is, you know, needs redefined. So, so those changing mindsets uh, are significant. Now, that's actually, that's a really, and, and, you know, that's been true probably from, time immemorial that you know that uh, young professionals have been educated in this one way and 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 I, and I think you're right that this the sense of sort of but uh, individual expert authority to um, uh, to the reality of of oftentimes the you know what um, Goldman called uh, um, 
social captivity. This, you know, that in, in many ways, a young engineer or architect is 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 socially captive to the firm and 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 and, ex, and expected to pay dues and so forth. And and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But as you were speaking, and I was thinking about um, the social complexity and and um, uh, and also the generative complexity. There are avenues um, uh, for the young, um, the young engineer, the young architect to express themselves, but um, but maybe but not in the ways that they've been taught to express themselves. So I mean, there's there's plenty of room on a team to be a great team member and and a, a leader and a collaborator and and but. That's not the stuff of being an architect or an engineer. At least that's not what's taught to be the stuff of being an architect or an engineer. That's not, not the mindset yeah. of what it means to be a great engineer or architect. That's right. I, I think you're right in terms of you know that 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 sense of what's the you know what's your identity. But I but I actually mm. I think that there's not all that much opportunity uh, that you know for the bulk of the young professionals they're plugged into roles that don't have uh, much. Uh, growth and development uh, potential to them. I, I think that's one of the one of the problems is that it, again you go through five or six mm. years of professional development in school and learning is so significant and you're expected to be learning and then you go into uh, professional practice inside consulting firms etc. Where learning is not what's going on. That the idea is to sell those hours and to be billable and being billable means probably you're not learning because there's no time for it. Uh, and and those requirements, I, th- I think you know, set in place. Is, is, and, and so one of the things that I think you know is 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 really problematic for firms is they they begin to have you know people that move through their early careers. Uh, one being convinced that there's no time for learning, and so you know, and and the firm doesn't need it anyway. So I'm not going to continue to learn as rapidly and as you know uh, in as deep a way as I did in school. And and second, the thing that happens, and I think this is you know uh, really you know incredibly problematic, is so many of the young professionals become cynical yeah. about the profession that they joined. So so they they were given one picture in school, which 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 was this attractive thing in terms of what they were going to be able to do. They go out in reality, they're confronted with a world that's that, that's very different. And so they become cynical, and one, they either leave the profession or they leave the firms, or two, you know, two, they stay, but they stay with that sense of cynicism, which is just corrosive, again, in terms of the health of the organization. Now, I completely agree with you. There are the possibilities, again, to take that, you know, you know take the, the, the situation we're confronting and, and to begin to redefine it. And, and to transform it and to move away from that, but that's the hard work of the future is to to, to to make that shift so that we're not subject to those, you know, subject to the you know creating you know generations of cynical engineers and architects that were you know believe that believe that were sold one thing in school but not able to actually practice the profession the way that you know their passion and their purpose suggested. Well, and I and the, this may be a case too where some, the the pathways for engineers and architects are, are, are different. The certification as an archi- architect takes a good bit longer than becoming a professional engineer and the, and the, um, and the, uh, the, the kind of, uh, um, dues paying that goes on, it seems to me may be, um, longer and, 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 uh, more menial than, 
you know, than 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 the average engineer today. But I but I you know I think that um, you know in in the past, I think that you know the situation was sim- more similar in engineering. But regardless, I think we're um, we're agreeing that the, there's the possibility of of difference. So what so so what do what do these firms need to do? To I mean, I I do think that this is actually uh, a, a systemic problem. Um, I, for engineering, I, I, I used I, I labeled it ABE. Anything but engineering. If you look at if you look at countries around the world, engineers want to become engineers um, at a certain a certain time of of uh, economic development. But um, it's it's kind of a tough road uh, road to hoe. If um, and 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 so people want to become something else that's easier and and uh, and where the the apprenticeship is not as is not as long. So you know what's a what's a what's a firm to do to kind of get away from ABE or ABA anything but an architect? How do we how do we attract how do we attract young people um, to the to the uh, professional workplace? So and I think if you look at law firms, they're in much the same way. They're, they're, Kind of slogging through right. being a junior partner, you know, for or a junior associate for a long time. You know, I think from 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 uh, my perspective, one of the keys is is for firms to really allow themselves to re-express what their purpose is in society mm-hmm. uh, that they want to pursue as an organization, and then allow the professionals, the young people, but as well as the established professionals, to pursue that sense of purpose. Uh, you know, I think lots of people, you know, have have commented on the, the significance of purpose as a motivating factor and a uniting sure. factor and aligning factor inside organizations. That uh, you know, the 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 professions or professional firms, you know, uh, got away from thinking about purposes. They became time sellers. Uh, got away from being thinking. I think deeply about their purpose when they became. Uh, you know, you mentioned you know the. The, the revolt of the engineers, but the you know in the in the you know as, as significant numbers of engineers just moved in to be mid-level managers inside industrial organizations, they got away from you know that pursuit of purpose, and mm-hmm. and so I think that 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 sense of re-engaging with what's the purpose of the domain that your profession is about, not 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 from the standpoint of you know defining it so that you can create boundaries around it, but then you know as as an enabling mechanism. With then fuzzy boundaries to engage in other professions and the other people that are you know surrounding you, that that, that are necessary collaborators in in the pursuit of the fulfillment of that purpose, you know I think I think a lot of it starts with that sense of purpose and vision, uh, both at the personal level and a lot of the work that we do in leadership development has that sense of personal mastery, uh, and understanding your personal purpose and passions and allowing yourself to express that. Uh, but then also doing that same thing in the firms uh, and moving away. You know, it, I think that the dumbing down piece happens with firms that just sell hours and have this economic business model that there's really no purpose other than just turning the crank. Yeah. We we just have a short time left, and, but I guess I'm curious. You know, so you've been doing this work with these firms for a while. How's what's the receptivity to the kinds of things that you talk about? Are, are the firms resisting it? Are they embracing it? Uh, and how tough is the slog in making these these changes? Uh, you know, in about yeah. thirty seconds or so. Okay, well, it, it's a tough slog. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, you know, this type of adaptive, transformative work is uh, definitely you know significant. You know, has significant challenges, but there are. 
you know, small numbers and growing in, growing in, in, in numbers uh, of firms and professionals, I believe, that are taking on that challenge and beginning to show results uh, right. and show the, the small wins and even bigger wins that suggest that it's the right path. Beautiful. So how can people find out about you and your work? Where should they uh, email or, or a website they can contact? Well, they can look at my website, uh, which is kylevdavy.com, or they can email me at kyle at kylevdavy.com, and the V is for Victor as my middle name. Kyle, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Your your work's great stuff. Uh, keep it up, and uh, the professions need it. Uh, higher education needs it, even though it's uh, a one-step removed. Thanks a lot. So, well, I appreciate uh, being asked. All right. Thank, thanks. Thanks. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio uh, with special, special guest uh, Kyle Davey. Uh, 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 help transform higher education and join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same t- time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.